Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Uh, we'd like to acknowledge, uh, uh, earlier we had uh, the Minister of Human Services here, uh, uh, Ephraim Sabir was here, and uh, is Maria Fitzpatrick still here, or did she sneak out? So our uh, MLA for Lethbridge East was here as well. We just acknowledge their presence. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next week, we have a very interesting topic and timely topic. All of SACPAW's topics are timely, of course. Uh, contaminated water from fracking. Who, the English here is kind of interesting. Who are responsible when things go wrong? Okay. <clears throat> I'm not sure if that's deliberate or not. But anyway, um, that is a t- very timely topic as well. And our speaker will be Andrew Nikiforic. And I think a lot of you know Andrew. Uh, he's written uh, many uh, on topics and environmental issues, political issues. Uh, he's also famous uh, uh, for his book on uh, uh, saboteurs, uh, Weibo Ludwig's War Against Big Oil. And he's also won the Governor's General Award for nonfiction uh, on other books as well, the Tar Sands and so on and so forth. He has written extensively on these issues. So uh, that's for next week. On the 24th, uh, the, um, the following week, uh, Ted Morton, who I know some of you know as well, he'll be uh, speaking again on uh, the topic of oil, and it will be about uh, the refining of bitumen. Is it worth doing or not? And uh, that's uh, so there'll be information coming out on that. So those are all very timely topics. And of course, some of you may have noticed there is an election going on, a federal election. Uh, and uh, it's been uh, hard not to notice that. Uh, the SACPA forum, uh, where all the candidates will be there to, uh, for us to uh, look them over and uh, question them. September the 22nd, from 7 till 9, and we're still nailing down the location. So watch for uh, an announcement around the location, but September the 22nd from 7 to 9, the election forum. So lots happening. All right, so we'd like to uh, ask John to come forward. Uh, There's a microphone over there. Uh, State your name. Make your point short and to the point and uh, get to your question. And uh, we look forward to a good conversation. Okay, um, Terry Shellington here. John, thank you for your presentation and the uh, kind of precise information and uh, legal political background you offered. I have a question and a half if I can sneak it past the uh, moderator. Uh, in the early, in one of your one of your slides, uh, and I forget which one, the the 
the statement used the, the term assisted suicide and euthanasia. And could you clarify for me the difference between those two terms? That's my half question. Sure. <clears throat> um, medically assisted dying takes both of those into account. Assisted suicide um, occurs, in, occurs when um, a patient is given a prescription, uh, picks up the drug, swallows it themselves. So that's assisted suicide. Euthanasia is when um, a patient asks for assisted dying from a doctor and the doctor gives them a shot, an injection. Sure. Um, the second question is something I should probably know the answer to, but I don't. And a math teacher once said to me, no question is stupid if you don't know the answer. But I, I am curious, and somebody else at the table was too, curious about... Uh, the churches of our country and what positions they have taken, if they have taken. Do you know anything about that? I, to be honest, we were talking about that at our table too. Um, the the gut reaction is that the Catholic Church is is steadfastly against this. It certainly is in the is and was in the United States. Um, and the the Catholic Church in the States poured millions and millions of money of dollars into a, um, a campaign to legalize medically assisted dying in Massachusetts a couple of years ago. So I'm, I'm pretty sure about the, um, the uh, Catholic Church. I don't, I don't know the, the, the answer to that question. We, when I was first involved with Dying with Dignity, so four years ago, there was a great fear that the churches would unite and, and try and... Um, uh, oppose this situation, but in fact, they 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 haven't, uh, as far as I'm aware. In the in the um, Ipsos Read poll that we did last August, uh, the uh, one of the one of the questions was, "What religion are you?" And um, over seventy percent of I think all religions, uh, of the people answering, answered in favor uh, and supported it. But I don't know what the official position of the churches are. No, I'm sorry. Mary Shillington. Uh, thanks, John, for being here and offering some information. When uh, at McKillop we had the end-of-life uh, choices uh, session, you weren't able to come, and, and somebody else represented dying with dignity. But one of the things that was encouraged by the health people that were there, the Alberta health people, was the green sleeves and that everybody should have a green sleeve uh, filled out with your doctor uh, so that your, your choices could be clear in that. Somebody at our kitchen, at our table, had a green sleeve uh, for the partner and the, it was not honored at the hospital. Uh, complication with the hospitals is that now there's hospital doctors, and so the people who are dealing with you are not the doctor that know you or know your health issue. Right. So what has been your experience, and what kind of recommendation would you make to us about that? Well, the, the green sleeve is a, is a green sleeve. It's a green plastic envelope that is um, promoted and provided by Alberta Health Services, and you stick it on the side of your fridge and put in it all medical um, papers that uh, pertain to you. So what your um, prescriptions are um, and 
and your medical history. And the idea of that is if you, if you are taken by ambulance and the EMS come in and pick you up, they look on the side of your fridge, pick up the green sleeve, and all this information is in there. And they take that with you to the hospital, and the hospital is meant to or, um, uh, recognize that and follow your instructions. One of the very important things that should be in that green sleeve is your personal directive. And uh, if there's a person in the room who, or there is a person in the room, and I won't make eye contact with them, but there's maybe more than one person in the room who doesn't have a personal directive. <laughs> you should run, not walk to, uh, to uh, your lawyer or even to a stationery store and pick up a, a, um, a form which will tell your family and your friends um, what your wishes are should you get uh, become unable to speak and, and tell the medical uh, staff what you want. So do you want resuscitation? Uh, do you want drugs if you get pneumonia? Do you want to be left to die? What's, what's the deal? So that's the, that's the green sleep uh, uh, program. Um, I, I'm just amazed that this, uh, this, these instructions were not followed when you get to, get to hospital. Dying with Dignity had, um, had a doctor come and speak to us a couple of years ago uh, about personal directives, was it, Susan, or the Greensleeve program? And, and she said that uh, they've got a, the, the personal directive, if, it, you know, if you have to look for it, then it's, it's useless. But if it's, if it's with you when you go to the hospital, the, the hospital should follow it. But if you go into emergency, then anything can happen and, and maybe it gets lost in the shuffle. That's not a very satisfactory answer, but that's what I understand the situation. Okay, Knut. My name is Knut Peterson. Uh, thanks very much, John, for coming today. Uh, my question relates to uh, statistics around people actually going through with the, what they have chosen to do. Uh, could you give it? I've heard figures less than 10% actually end up using what, what they've chosen to do. Uh, is there any statistics around that? Yeah, yes, there are. There's, there's lots of statistics from um, from the Netherlands and from um, and from Oregon. Uh, Oregon has to or has to and does uh, prepare a, an annual report every year on on the number of people that ask for and receive um, physician assisted dying in Oregon. And to be honest, I, I may be slipping a decimal point here, but it, it's either. 3% of all deaths or 0.3% of all deaths. So maybe 3 in 1,000 deaths uh, where it is eligible, where, where people are eligible for it, actually take advantage of it. I think the interesting thing, if, if you look at not so much Oregon, but in, in Europe, I think the numbers are increasing quite rapidly, and, and some opponents say, well, that's bad. Uh, but I, I think and I don't know, but I would think that much of that is due to uh, the fact that it's becoming much more talked about, much more well-known. Uh, people are aware of it, and they go, oh, wow, I don't have to suffer for the next 25 years or 10 years in a hospital bed. I can, I can go now. So I think that um, I, I think 0.3% is, is the right number, but I think it, um, it 
is increasing and maybe will increase as it becomes more um, known about. Okay, Van. Um, I'm Van Christou, and I'd like to preface my question by congratulating you, John, for uh, taking this job on um, in the, with the association with the Dining and Dignity, uh, with Dignity Group. Uh, and for being able to make yourself as knowledgeable as you are about the whole issue and bring it to us today. Thank you very much. Um, an issue that, that has come up is uh, it's obvious in many parts of the world that uh, dying with dignity is something that people deserve and should have a right to. Um, my question is is around the, the medical profession's attitude about keeping people alive, the great pride that they take personally in keeping people alive. And um, I've had a, a personal uh, um, involvement uh, in our family with uh, somebody who was kept alive completely out of her senses for 14 years. And the indignities that she suffered during those 14 years uh, shouldn't happen to the worst animal in this world. And um, the doctors are very proud of having kept her alive all those years. Um, what has been your observation? Uh, it's my opinion that the medical profession should be at the forefront, if they believe in the Hippocratic Oath, of promoting dying with dignity. What has been your observation, John, in your work, about their attitude, the, the attitude of the, of the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the medical uh, associations in North America. Thanks, Van. <clears throat> um, Dying with Dignity Canada, the organization, uh, has been around for 32 years, and for uh, 31 and a half of those years, we've been at loggerheads with the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, we have been advocating for the rights of patients. They've been writing, advocating for the rights of doctors. Now, I can't speak to, um, you know, how doctors or whether doctors keep patients alive just because they can, but I suspect, I suspect that's true because a lot of the objections um, when this was being discussed by doctors was exactly as Van um, suggested. It's against the Hippocratic Oath of, to do no harm. If you believe you do no harm, then the doctors say, well, I can't possibly kill a patient if... If, uh, if I'm trying to avoid doing harm. The flip side to that, of course, is which is the worst harm? Is it, is it ending somebody's suffering or prolonging some, somebody's suffering? So <clears throat> uh, I think now in the last six months, Dying with Dignity Canada and the CMA are getting much closer together, whether it's because we're both, we know, both organizations know the legislation is coming down so we've got to do something to, uh, about it, and we've got to get together and work together on this. Um, it's at the um, uh, CMA's uh, Canadian Medical Association's annual general meeting a couple of weeks ago. There was a there was a heated discussion <clears throat> about whether a non-consenting doctor. Um, so a doctor who doesn't believe in um, euthanizing a patient uh, has the duty to refer to another doctor who will do it for the patient. 
And and there was a lot of opposition to that, and, and the non-consenting doctors in the room said, no, if, I, if, if it's against my beliefs about doing it, then I'm not going I'm, I'm to... It's almost like that woman in the States who you know, wouldn't sign a marriage license for the gay couple because it was against her religion. It, it's, so, anyway, the CMA um, took a vote on this, and I'm happy to say that 77% of those uh, doctors who were voting voted <coughs> to uphold the idea that it's the duty of a physician to refer to um, a consenting physician. So that was the good news. John. Greenlee is my name. John, if physician-assisted suicide would have been available when you were so physically ill, would you still be alive here today? I'm, I'm, I'm um, happy to say that, yeah, I would. Um, I was, it was more of a, it was more of an intellectual, no, it wasn't an intellectual question. Uh, I, I go back a, a long way on this, even before that. I watched a movie when I was, I don't know, 40 years old about, uh, about this topic, and it, it, it um, amazed me that the guy in the movie couldn't uh, get assistance to die. <clears throat> and when I was laying there in bed and not being able to get out of bed, I thought, well, if I wanted to take myself out, the only way that I know without making a mess, um, and I'm a kind of a neat and tidy person, um, <laughs> would, be, would be to hook up the um, uh, exhaust pipe of the car in the garage. And I thought, well, I can't do that. I, I, I can't walk to the bathroom. Never mind get out and you know, get a screwdriver and get the tube. And I, it, it was over my head. Um, so, had I had the choice, no, I wasn't suicidal at that point. Uh, I was, I was certainly thinking and, you know, sort of weighing the options. But if I'd had that option, I can tell you, you know, look you straight in the eye and say, no, I wouldn't. I, so I would still be here today. Yeah. Henry Bossman. Uh, since the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled and instructed the provinces to get their uh, legislation regarding uh, dying or assisted dying in place, what's left for us to do? Oh, I think there's a huge amount um, because it's in such a state of flux at the moment. The, the federal government basically hasn't done anything. Um, uh, in August, so about a month ago, the other provinces, with the exception of Quebec, which is already on track, and BC, and I have no idea why they didn't join in, but the other provinces across Canada got together. Ontario is leading this initiative, and they appoint, the representatives from the various provinces and territories appointed a nine-person um, expert panel um, to represent all of the provinces and to uh, ask Canadians to fill out a survey and tell them what they think. Um, so that, that's what the provinces are doing, and they promised to report back by the end of December. Now, if the feds do nothing, then, it, as you say, the, the responsibility uh, for this legislation will devolve back down to the, uh, the provincial level. And I was happy to see the minister sitting here uh, earlier. Um, my fear is that 
if if the provinces do it piecemeal, one by one by one by one, you're going to have all sorts of different legislation across the country. So, you know, in Quebec, we see that you need to be at the end of life before you can access this. Well, if you, you know, there are lots of uh, incurable illnesses that, that cause horrendous suffering that can go on for years. So that may be not what you want in your provincial legislation. So I think that we have to um, uh, tell our uh, MLAs what we want and make personal presentations to them, write letters, write letters to the newspaper, keep this thing on the, on the front burner, because it, it is a political issue. There's no getting away from it, and, and we have to change the, the, the policies at the present time. From a, from a federal point of view, as I say, I think you have to um, uh, talk to your um, uh, federal um, candidates and ask them what they, what they think. <clears throat> And outside on the table, Susan Wishaw has a uh, questionnaire for candidates. So it says, please present the following details to your candidate. And, and then there's a, um, um, a place for them to sign whether or not they agree with, with this concept. So please pick up uh, these forms on your way out. Take them with you to the forum. Make sure the candidates know that this is top of mind and maybe... Uh, that, that's the only way that we can pressure it, pressure on them to get it done. Trevor? Uh, <clears throat> Trevor Page. John, um, your slides on the Supreme Court ruling and the legislation before the Quebec Provincial Assembly. What happens if I have an accident? I'm mentally competent now. But Is if that a I... question? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, couldn't, re couldn't resist that. Would you like me to cede my question to <laughs> yeah, you, sure. Mr. Moderator? Do you wish to intervene? <laughs> so being mentally competent now, if I have an accident and I'm no longer mentally competent and I'm taken into emergency... What provisions do I need, if any, to have in order for my will to be respected? Yeah. That's the first part. The second part... Do, do, you, you, mean, do you mean your, your will, your, your, what, what you want to happen? Not, not the written will. I just want to get that straight. Well, we have a problem, as you mentioned earlier, with the emergency room doctor not actually knowing what you want done. Because the green sleeve, as the emergency doctor said at the meeting you were referring to, is actually down in the archives. It's not computerized. So there is no way that the emergency room doctor can call up what you want done. So... I don't see that I'm covered. The other thing is, if I'm driving, I don't take my green sleeve with me. So how do we protect ourselves once the legal uh, things have been taken care of at the national and the provincial level? 
what do we do to protect ourselves so that our will is known and respected as per the changes to the law? I think the only thing that you can do is to make sure that you have a, you have a personal directive and that uh, more than one person um, knows where it is um, and that when you wind up unconscious in the emergency room, you presumably or hopefully some person, a close personal friend or family member, will be eventually will be there with you and will know what, you, what, your, um, what your will is. Um, but I don't think there's any guarantee that, that, um, that if they don't know, they can't follow your instructions. So, so you, you need to have personal, you know, personal conscious represent, somebody representing you at the time. Perhaps we should be urging computerization of records as well. Well, that's that's the that's the uh, obscene thing about this. The, the the provincial government a number of years ago, like mm, four or five years ago, came up with a great um, kit on um, on personal directives. And one of the things that you could do was to register it with with the provincial government. But so few people registered it in the first few months that they cancelled it. So. It's no longer available, as far as I know. Okay. Uh, John Nightingale. Um, as someone who rather shamefacedly have to admit it was me who does not have a personal <laughs> directive, but <clears throat> um, seriously, um, when you talked about the Supreme Court decision, you'd made reference to the fact that you had to be of competent and sound mind, I believe, and you actually said, sadly, that would not apply to a person with Alzheimer's. Right. So if I did have a personal directive and I stated that should I in the future develop some form of dementia, would that allow uh, me to proceed with my wishes or does the Supreme Court overrule a personal directive in that particular case? That, that's a really good question, and it's been wrestled with um, for years in this in this movement of um, you know, choice in dying, <clears throat> and and I think I think the public mood is changing. But as they say, politics is the art of the possible, and by trying to design legislation or ask for legislation that includes. Uh, pre-direction based on a <clears throat> on a future event um, that was that was deemed to be pretty hard to sell to uh, the Canadian public and to, and to the um, um, in the in the Supreme Court case. So it, 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 it's a it's a case of trying to get all of the cake. Uh, and risk losing all of the cake or going for half of the cake knowing that you've got a pretty good chance of, of getting it. So it was decided that it was too difficult to get that sort of... Um, um, no, what's the word I want? Um, permission to, to include Alzheimer's and, and, uh, and dementia into the equation. So... The bottom line is everywhere at the present time 
if you're not mentally competent, it doesn't matter what your wishes are or were, uh, you ain't going to get it. And there's this, t I know whether uh, the people in the audience are aware of this terrible case uh, in BC of, um, thank you, Margot Bentley, who was a nurse in a nursing home for many, many years. And, and she wrote two documents saying, if I ever get Alzheimer's, I want to die. Don't, uh, now I'm grasping for the words, but don't feed me, don't, uh, just let me die. And, and she got Alzheimer's and uh, she went into a nursing home as a patient herself. Her, her husband and her daughter took the nursing home to court to let, the, uh, let Margot die and the judge for, I don't know what he had for breakfast, but he said no. He, the, and she's still alive. That was one of the pictures that I showed you, was was poor old Margot Bentley. I don't know how old she is now, 89, 85. Uh, and she's she's um, been uh, totally um, in, what's the word I want, um, un, unconscious, uh, yeah, pretty well unconscious for many years. And still they won't let her die because the, the judge decided that it was normal care that the nursing home was giving to her. And it's, it's dreadful. So it, it's a sad situation if you get in that situation. Yeah. And a quick comment about the federal response to the uh, Supreme Court. Um, it seems to me that the Harper government at this point in time is doing exactly the same thing as they're doing with greenhouse gas emissions. They're passing the buck onto each of the provinces and the territories. And in my opinion, anyway, um, this is just simply going to lead to fragmentation across the country, and that will be mirrored with the mandate of the dying with dignity if each and every province has its own individual interpretation. It should be directed from the federal Absolutely. government in both greenhouse gas emissions and the, the assisted suicide. Right. Thank you. And, and I think you can lump uh, um, abortion in with that too. And if I may be permitted a second question, um, I'd like to br bring a personal um, uh, dimension into the, in, into the discussion, and that is that we're having many more people live much longer nowadays. Uh, I, for example, am in good health, uh, approaching my 90th birthday. I've lived a very good life, but I think that all my future days would be enhanced by having a, a prescription in my possession where I could end my life when I wanted. And that would not only permit me a happier life, but would permit me to perhaps uh, do some functions within the society that would be beneficial to everyone. Uh, so I think that, that that's another area within this that we have to consider seriously. Don't you, John? I couldn't agree more, yeah. I, I absolutely do, personally, yeah. Uh, I, that's, not a, <laughs> that's not an official pronouncement from dying with dignity, but it, it, it totally makes sense, yeah, as the reaction showed, yeah. Yeah, thank you for asking, John. Okay. Thank you, John. Okay. That was a great presentation. Okay. Thank you.